Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch Podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekend of October 15th through the 17th, 2021. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone's doing well out there. It's getting pretty chilly here in New York City. I want to have to go out, walk out the dog. I have to like definitely bundle up now. I'm definitely super busy this week, though, with work and another podcast project I'm working on. So let's cut the chit-chat and just get straight to this week's headlines. Normally, we do beyond the numbers at the end of the show, but there are a couple of headlines I think are worth covering at the top. So we'll start there. First up, the IATSE union and the AMPTP studio negotiations. Um, as of last week, we got news that the union members had approved a strike and that negotiations were resuming between the studios and the union. As a reminder, the main points of contention were enforcing 10-hour turnaround times between filming days, as well as to have studios drop the new media designation for studios like Amazon and Netflix that basically allow them to pay less in the pension plans than traditional studios, which, given how big those have gotten in recent years, definitely feels like an enactment. As the week progressed, news reports seemed less optimistic that a deal would be reached. Variety on Tuesday said the studios were refusing to do what is needed to avoid a strike, and on Wednesday, a strike was called for 12.01 a.m. Monday, October 18th, if a deal could not be reached by then. With 60,000 union members walking off sets across the U.S. uh, and some international locals also partaking, this would definitely be a big deal for the movie industry. Naturally, part of this likely was media pressure by the union on the studios, but you know, if it was a game of chicken to come if it was a game of chicken and it would continue on, Hollywood would definitely shut down. Then, on Sunday, news broke that negotiations had picked up again with a deal being near, with help from Disney's chairman of general entertainment content Peter Rice and internment attorney Ken Zephron being key players in brokering a deal. The three-year deal reportedly includes an increase of annual pay minimums of 3% per year as opposed to 3% in the first year and then 2.5% in subsequent years. And then the ITATSE requested a 10-hour turnaround times plus 54-hour turnaround times on weekends. In addition, MLK Day will be a holiday, more diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, and funding for health and pension plans. No news if anything, I, and anything I could find about new me- the new media designation for Netflix and such. Now, that being said, it's not a done deal yet, despite union leadership phasing the deal. While you know they have agreed to the deal, it needs to be ratified by a member vote. And unlike the near-unanimous strike authorization a few weeks ago, this one seems a lot more split in reaction, at least according to social media. Word on the grapevine is that trade and and in the and on the trades are that union members aren't particularly happy with the deal. As you know, while they did get the ten-hour turnarounds, you know they were really hoping for more than that um, and more meaningful changes to onset conditions, such as you know enforcement of lunch uh, breaks. Now that vote will be over the next several weeks, so we don't really know exactly how it's going to pan out, um, but it, it it could potentially be very close. Um, so for now, it's business as usual. Now, I've seen some takes that the workers should strike anyway to serve it to the man and push the issue more for more uh, benefits. And while the union certainly you know, should if they decide to do so, the tricky part is that it doesn't, it's not really a black and white situation. Uh, really, striking is a, mutually, a, form, a form of mutually assured destruction with long-lasting implications for the industry. Here's, a, here's, a, here's one take. If they do strike and you know, it causes productions to be delayed for months, films and shows will be delayed on both streaming and in theaters. Now... There was just so much stuff in streaming, right? Um, and they also have much deeper pocketbooks that 
you know, very well. Uh, they could write out that, you know, sir, the, co the content would be as great, so they might be scraping the barrel. But the benefit of streaming is that there is a lot of back content already there. The new content, right, that really only hurts studios, right, who are putting stuff out in theaters, um, the traditional studios, not Amazon, not Netflix. So, yeah, and, and the fact that it's an Amazon and Netflix who are supposedly the most exploitative of these workers, you know, if it ends up being delayed, if new releases be end up being delayed coming to theaters for months, like, you know, as in the last year with COVID, then, you know, if the, it, then the streaming platforms are the ones who are going to be not in the end. More movie theaters are going to suffer as a result of a strike, um, and as a result, they'll close down, which then you know limits the type of films that are being made in the in the future, right? In the future, it might be that more studios decide like, hey, we should just do more streaming stuff, right? Which causes less budget, right, and and causes more corners to be cut in production. So, you know, again, not say if if the members decide really that these these terms are untenable for them full support for them for doing what they need to do. But also, you know, if there's anyone who's taking a bird's eye view, that's definitely something I think that's weighing on these minds, which I think is going to play into people's decisions on whether or not they're going to call to ratify the agreement or not. Um, and if they, if they don't ratify the agreement, it's not like they're going to strike immediately. It just means that the union leadership needs to go back and negotiate harder. It's no wonder, of course, though, that Disney, you know, being the one with the uh, most on the line, given that they have probably the most content out there um, and, and the biggest projects out there, that you know, they would be the one to step in with negotiations. Uh, which brings us to our next Beyond the Numbers news item. Now, I'm not sure if this was because they were anticipating a deal not being reached, um, or maybe it would have happened anyway. But Disney announced on Monday uh, a shuffling of their MCU films for 2022 onward, or really more domino effect than shuffling. First off, Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness was originally set for March 25th next year. That is being pushed back to May 6th, 2022. Uh, the previous Marvel film on May 6th was Thor Love and Thunder, and that is being pushed back to July 8th, 2022. This then pushes Black Panther Wakanda From Ever from uh, that July date to November 11th, 2022. That then pushes the Marvels uh, from November 2022 to February 17th, 2023. Uh, this then pushes Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania from February to July 28, 2023. Notably, Ant-Man and the Wasp skips over Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which is in the May 5th, 2023 date. Uh, there are also a number of other untitled films, such as live-action Marvel films in 20th century that uh, got moved around. I'm not going to really do, dive into those dates. However, we also got a new date for Indiana Jones 5 from July 29th, 2022, all the way back to June 30th, 2023. Almost, you know, 11 months. Now, reminder, this film has been, was originally set for July 2019, but got pushed back. And, you know, Harrison Ford is going to be 82 years old when this film comes out. Um, the other, I guess, real big Marvel film that, you know, is still in the pipeline is Avatar 2, set for December 16th, uh, 2022, remaining where it is. So why are these films moving, right? I, I believe that, you know, all of them actually, you know, I think as of this morning, we actually got confirmation that Marvel was began suiting. So, you know, most of the, but all the films that moved definitely have started suiting. So I think it's an acknowledgement that they're probably going to need more time to work on production for whatever reason. Maybe it was because they thought that the IATSE strike would come around and they wanted to, you know, anticipate like, okay, if the strike happens, we need to budget more time for production whenever it picks up again. Therefore, we need to push back. Um, maybe they want to give themselves that buffer space. Maybe they figure that, hey, if the deal comes through with the union, you know, whatever budget we had for production times, we're going to need to, you know, maybe extend the time. Now, granted, Disney was considered one of the good ones from what I've heard to work with in the industry in terms of respecting those times, but you never know. They want to give themselves more buffer time if, that, if that's the case. Um, according to the deadline, you know, this isn't a shift 
in the release strategy to make things more day and date, um, or really anything about Disney trying to say, oh, there's going to be another wave of COVID. That's why we need to push things back. I think it's real. They they said they genuinely said it's just you know production. They needed more time on these films, so they're pushing them back. Now, as a fun comparison, DC Fandom, you know, happened in its second year this year, um, you know, virtual fan event. Um, And so let's look at some of the things that were shown this past weekend and how they were impacted, you know, being the other major uh, superhero franchise out there, the DC films, um, how they compared to the Marvel films. So from DC Fandom, probably the biggest news was Robert Pattinson's Batman film getting its first trailer uh, coming out uh, March 4th. Uh, Doctor Strange got pushed back a few months from, you know, their March date. So, you know, that gives uh, Robert the, the Batman a little bit more time to breathe unless something else moves up to take the vacated March 25th date. Uh, possibilities include uh, the Fantastic Beasts film from Warner Brothers, which apparently is still happening, uh, or Sonic the Hedgehog 2, or Sony's assassin film starring Brad Pitt called Bullet Train. Um, all of those are within the first two weeks of April, um, you know, within that time frame with competing with each other. So one of them might move and move a little bit earlier to have a little bit more breathing room. Next up from DC, Black Adam, the spin-off of Suzanne starring The Rock, has moved, is coming uh, July 29th, um, and that got a first look at DC fandom. That is currently three weeks behind Thor Love and Thunder, so not too bad. Um, next up, The Flash, which is the Ezra Miller solar film that was supposed to reset the DC multiverse, according to rumors, uh, has a t- got a teaser and is set for November 4th, 2022. That is a bit problematic for them, since that is one week in front of Black Panther Wakanda Forever, which would potentially kill off its legs. So I anticipate that moving at some point. Not sure where, but I, I, I anticipate The Flash is going to you know, move around. Um, next up, we have the Aquaman sequel, Aquaman in the Last Kingdom, set for December 16th, 2022. Um, that is competing against Avatar 2 currently. Real curious to see if one of those ends up moving or not. Um, that's also one week before the Illumination Mario film, but I think you know, that is, there's probably a good chance those films can coincide with each other. And then finally, the Ant-Man sequel, the Sazam sequel film, Fury of the Gods, is set for uh, June 2023. Currently, no conflict with Marvel films, though that is one week behind the live-action Little Mermaid remake. So yeah, those are the main Beyond the Numbers headlines from the week. Uh, You know, the the IATSC strike being averted for now, um, and the new uh, Marvel release dates. Um, There are a couple of smaller items I'm going to touch on, but we'll do that at the end of the show. Before we get to the numbers, though, for for this week's box office, you know, a, a quick message from our friends at Contrazoom Pod, where they go back and forth about film. This week, Dakota reps his home up north in the you know snowy white north uh, over and goes to the Vancouver International Film Festival uh, and go, goes over the films he saw there, including potential Oscar contenders like Belfast, Red Rocket, Drive My Car, and more. Hi, this is Dakota, host of Contrazoom Pod, where we go back and forth about film. I am obsessed with movies. I could talk about them all day. If you're like me, then you'll love my podcast. Every week we take a new topic, whether it's ranking a director's filmography, covering major film festivals, or getting way into Oscar season. While every week is different, we do have some recurring topics, like our Make Remake series looking at an original film and its remake, or our very popular A History Of program, taking an in-depth look, looking at some of the biggest companies involved in film, including Criterion, A24, and Neon. It isn't all super serious topics, though, as we always need to play catch-up with all the hottest Marvel Cinematic Universe news and general pop culture goings-on. There's something for every kind of movie lover, whether you want reviews, interviews, or in-depth conversations. ContraZoom Pod is found on all podcatcher apps, and visit ContraZoomPod.com for even more information. 
All right, so moving to this week's box office numbers. We got a bit of a mixed bag. We have one film overperforming and one underperforming in their debut. In first place, the sequel to 2018's reboot of the Halloween franchise, Halloween Kills, opened from Universal to 49.4 million in 3,705 theaters per theater average of $13,335. That's in line with estimates, a bit on the higher end actually from the industry. Um, honestly, I thought they were too high, but I guess you know that just shows what I know. Um, you know, it's just shy of having three weeks in a row with a 50 million plus opening, but still a solid performance nonetheless. Uh, this is the highest R-rated film post-pandemic, nearly doubling the Suicide Squad's. $26 million, um, and also the highest horror opening post-pandemic, beating out A Quiet Place Part 2, $47.5 million. It also happens to be the highest opening for a free date-and-date release, so free meaning that it doesn't include the premiere access, pay an extra $30 on Disney, um, since you know technically this also released on Peacock, but then again, and, and this did beat you know, Godzilla vs. Kong's $32 million, which was the previous record holder. Then again, you know who really has Peacock at this point, right? I don't. I think you know this really just goes to show the strength of theatrical as opposed to showing that, oh, day and date isn't really a problem. It's a peacock. No one has peacock. Anyway, this one was definitely driven by fans. 39% from critics from Rotten Tomatoes, but 71% from the audience and a B- on CinemaScore. At a pretty decent Friday to Saturday hold, going from 22.8 million on Friday, including Thursday previews, down only 24% to 17.3 million on Saturday. Uh, internationally, it got another $5.5 million in 20 markets, so about $55 million lifetime. Um, this is off of a production budget of $20 million, and you know, knowing this is going to be the second in a trilogy produced by Jason Blum, it's no surprise that production for the third film, Halloween Ends, has already, is already scheduled to begin in January. In second place, we have the second weekend of Bond at $23.7 million in 4,407 theaters, per theater average for No Time to Die of $5,399, 57% drop versus last weekend, but a stunning domestic total uh, and a running domestic total of $99 million even. It's a bit of a steep drop, you know, 57%, um, since, you know, it, it seems that if you were going to go see Bond, you probably saw it in its first weekend. Um, but as we noted last week, you know, Bond does skew internationally. That's evidenced by the massive $348 million international in 72 markets so far, including $93 million to date in the UK, third highest Bond of all time, and not yet even releasing in China. So far, that's made it jump up to 400 $147 million worldwide, leapfrogging Sang-Chi to grab the number six spot for the global top box office uh, leaderboard of the year, only about $20 million away from taking the, taking the next place from Godzilla vs. Kong. In third place, uh, it's the third weekend of Venom, Let There Be Carnage. It drops 48% uh, to $16 million in 4,013 theaters, per theater average of $4,112, running domestic total of $168 million, crossing that $150 million mark this weekend. Um, it adds on, uh, adds on $115 million abroad, uh, um, in 44 markets, uh, you know, going wider this weekend in even more markets, um, including opening num number one in 39 of those markets. Um, it now sits at $283 million lifetime. It's currently outpacing Sang-Chi, Black Widow, Bond, and F9 in all of those same for like for like markets. In fourth place is the obligatory children's film, The Addams Family True, dropping only 30% in weekend three for $7 million in 3,607 theaters, per theater average of $1,959, domestic total of $42.1 million. Adding in $16 million abroad in 21 market, it sits at $58 million worldwide, plus whatever it made when it opened the day and date on VOD. 
Rounding out the top five is the other new film of this week, the underperformance of Last Duel. This medieval epic drama, era drama, not an epic, but an, uh, an era drama, uh, from Ridley Scott, starring Matt Damon and Adam Driver, opened to a measly $4.7 million, a bit more than half of the estimated $8.4 million from box office pros. So why the underperformance? Well, for one, uh, it is a film that likely relied on older audiences to carry it. However, you know, one, the performance of older audiences for Bond last week doesn't necessarily mean they're going to come out for every new film. Um, only 28% of the audience this time was to over 25 years old. Um, and likely, you know, if anyone older hadn't yet seen Bond and they were going to the theaters, I think they would choose to see Bond over this. Uh, furthermore, it is also a fairly long film at two and a half hours or more, uh, limiting the walk-up appeal. And even and you know, see other films like Respect or The Green Knight, you know, not doing great this summer, you know, for you know similar reasons. Um, add on the fact that the subject matter is about a rape, apparently including a very graphic rape scene, um, and you know that doesn't make it the most appealing of things to watch. Uh, critics did like it at eighty percent, eighty-six percent, and audience who did see it gave it an eighty percent. But cinema score of a B plus is on the lower end of what you'd want for, you know, uh, an art house type film um, and, you know, presumably something that would be awards bait. You know, that being said, I think this was a long shot to being profitable anyway. Uh, the budget for this was reportedly $100 million, which generally period pieces are that expensive. And, you know, according to people who had seen it, it definitely shows that it costs $100 million on the screen. But, you know, that that's not definitely help when you're making only $5 million domestically and then $5 million abroad for about, you know, $9 million lifetime or so. Um, definitely, I don't think it's going to make its money back here. And, you know, who knows if it's actually going to get, you know, Oscars. I don't think the, the reception is quite at the point from what I've heard on the grapevine of getting the top awards. Maybe might get a couple for technical or so on, but I don't think that's what studios were hoping for. Uh, anyway, outside the top 10, Shang-Chi in number 6 crossed $217.8 million, going up one more spot in the MCU total grossing rankings ahead of Ant-Man and the Wasp to get to number 18 out of 25. Likely going to touch $225 million at this rate with a 3x multiplier and get closer to $230 million. Globally, it now sits at $413 million worldwide. Uh, meanwhile, Black Widow officially closes its run at $183.6 million domestically for a 2.29x multiplier and 376.9 worldwide. Now, domestically down all the way at number 10, Dear Evan Hansen in its week 3, of course, had, had a, ex the expected drop-off of about 1,000 theaters or so, a little bit less, um, dropping another 62% this weekend. Overall, total box, box office sits at $107.4 million in its, for the third weekend in a row. We've had over $100 million at the box office, um, about 78% of the way to where we were at this time in 2019 when Maleficent opened. Um, it led a $137 million box office. Next weekend, we have two wide releases in Dune, opening on HBO Max on Thursday as well, uh, as in theaters, with a forecast at $42 to $52 million opening weekend from box office pros. Uh, we also have Ron's Gone Wrong, uh, the 20th century animated film, uh, forecasted for about $7 to $12 million, though who knows, maybe it might take some of the Addams Family uh, market away. Uh, in addition, Wes Anderson's latest film, The Friends Dispatch, will have a limited release in 50 theaters uh, next weekend as well. Now back to Dune real quick. Nine days before release pre-sales here in the States, uh, pre-sales were about $3.5 million domestically. Again, skewed toward IMAX and premium large formats. Um, so far, internationally, it's made $129.3 million in 36 markets, 9% 9 9 of that coming from IMAX overseas. Uh, not much other international news that I, I, mean, I haven't already covered above, though. Apparently, Disney is getting in on the anime and K-drama game. They announced that they're going to be licensing content from Japan, Korea, as well as China and Indonesia 
countries as well um, for their platform. You know, makes sense given their ambitions in the region as well as the success of Star Wars Visions recently. Moving on to China, the Battle of Lake Changjin train knows no stops. It took first place yet again with 72.5 million US dollars for a running total of 769.9 million dollars to date. That is now good for the second highest film of the year behind another Chinese film, High Mom at 822 million dollars. Um, at this point, the number is certainly in reach to get to the number one of the year so far. Um, it's also number four of all time in China behind local animated film Neja, potentially depending on if you're going by uh, yen or by, or no by 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 yuan or by um by U.S. dollars, you know, depending on the exchange rates, it might actually be ahead of, of Neza. Um, at this point, Wolf Warrior, the highest grossing Chinese film of all time, is within reach with 874 million U.S. dollars. And then at that point, you got to start thinking, maybe might even beat The Force Awakens record of the highest grossing film in a single market. Uh, the Force Awakens, as a reminder, made $936 million US um, in, in, in the U.S. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's going to be the first billion dollar film uh, in a single region in you know in China alone but then again who knows at this point right it's definitely a crazy chain uh, anecdotally you know it's definitely getting free tickets f uh, promoted by the government you know for you know being obviously a, a bit of a propagandaist piece um, anyway, uh, the rest of China's top five is pretty med middling in comparison. Uh, other, you know, propaganda film, My Country, My Parents, second place for $14.6 million and uh, added $210 million to date. Uh, romantic Fantasy, The Curse of Turandot, opened to $2.3 million uh, in third place. Though, oddly enough, and I got to talk about this, uh, this one stars Dylan Sprouse and is based on an Italian opera. So, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, anyway, in fourth place, we have the drama, Saturday Fiction, opening to $2.2 million. And then we have the comedy Knock Knock opening to $1.2 million in fifth place. Uh, we also got a report that China has officially caused 80,000 cinema screens in 14,000 theaters, which compared to North America's 44,000 screens um, is definitely, you know, almost twice, but also put it in comparison, that's one screen for every 17,500 people as opposed to the U.S., where that ratio is about one screen to every 75,000 people. So, you know, that just goes to so there's a lot more market and money to be made in China. Uh, the other exciting story out of China um, are the pre-sale numbers for Dune. Now it's been a bit of a roller coaster following these. Fans seem to be, you know, fans of Dune seem to not really be a fan of 3D screenings in China, and those make up the majority of so time. So you know, pre-sales have been uh, relatively low. Uh, some were saying, you know, as low as maybe to, to forecasting for 15 million dollars lifetime. However, the past couple of days it seems to have picked up for one reason or another, uh, improving to the forecast now saying maybe 15 to 25 million opening weekend, 30 to 50 million dollars lifetime. Still not a crazy big number for what I think people we're hoping, especially considering that Legendary uh, is the producer in this and they are owned by a Chinese film. Um, you know, $400 million may be off the mark, maybe even $300 million. Um, and that might be a stretch. Um, however, there, I think the reason for this might be that there was a leak, apparently, of Dune, uh, um, you know, on, on pirating sites. And then, you know, given the, just the cinematic nature of Dune, I think people realized they wanted to see this on a big screen, so they went ahead and, and looked for them. Um, who knows, maybe maybe movie theater people are, maybe theater owners were realizing, hey, they aren't getting a lot of pre-sales, so they switched over to the, the 2D versions. Who knows? Um, you know, now, now, regardless, you know, I think it, it is in a good enough place that, you know, hopefully Dune will get the sequel greenlit by this time when we're recording next week. Oh, and of course, you know, we already knew this, but another report that Eternal most likely isn't going to get a China release, while, again, Bond comes out on the 29th. 
Speaking of the Eternals, though, I think we mentioned this last weekend, but another report saying that pre-sales are through the roof for the Eternals, 86% ahead of Shang-Chi and 30% of Black Widow in the same first 24-hour period. Um, you know, with a $2.6 million total of pre-sales, AMC reporting it as their biggest one-day pre-sales of the year so far. Box Office Pros has it forecasted for 82 to $102 million, though for some reason I have the feeling like Shang-Chi, it could go higher and higher as the estimates come in uh, over the weekend. Also, apparently, warning, uh, but apparently somebody put the post credit scene, you know, not the full scene, but like, you know, they, they described it online. Uh, so be wary, wary on the internet if you're trying to go in spoiler-free. Um, and then the last couple of you know minor headlines to cover. Uh, last week we said the Golden Globes were going ahead without a telecast. Um, apparently that that has been set for January 9th with nominations, uh, whoever will let themselves be nominated, uh, being announced December 13th. Uh, rental company, DVD rental company Redbox is apparently partnering with Lionsgate to make original content for it, a streaming platform. Uh, but speaking of streaming platforms, uh, art house streamer and distributor Mubi is launching a movie pass-like service called Mubi Go, launching in New York this month and later in LA next year. Uh, the idea is that you know they'll select one movie per week and give you options for times, you know, over the course of the week, and give you a, tic- a free ticket to that, you know, um, plus you know a different movie available on their streaming service every day. Uh, the total for this is ten. $10.99 a month. Uh, definitely a specific, I think, film buff market that they're targeting here, where you know the appeal the appeal isn't so much the flexibility um, and the back catalog of stuff that you can see, but really the curation element of seeing new films that you, know, you would you haven't seen otherwise, uh, especially in the theatrical market. You know that said, you know seeing help you know seeing anything to help the struggling art house theater scene, I'm all for. Um, even if I don't think this is the service for me. Uh, with that, I think that's a wrap for this episode. Uh, Submit ideas for us, I said, cover via email at boxofficewatchpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at BOWatchPodcast. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Uh, make sure you subscribe and leave a review, or at the very least, tell a friend that any of that helps. If you're feeling extra generous, consider supporting us on Patreon, which help lets me make not only this show, but all the other podcasts that I work on. Links to all of those will be in our show notes. Numbers used in this show come from thenumbers.com. Intro and outro music from Kevin MacLeod. You can find his stuff at the company that film so.io. Editing production by Ninja Boy Media. Until next time, this has been the Box Office Watch Podcast. And remember, our watch goes on. Yeah.